So you're telling me you're in, uh, what, what's the name of the town? Crawford, Colorado. And where? Uh, so it's on the western slope. So if you look at western Colorado, Grand Junction is like the biggest city. Montrose is the second biggest city. And if you could build a bridge over the top of the Black Canyon from Montrose, you could drive right in the back of our ranch. So an hour and a half drive would turn into a 15-minute drive. You just have to go all the way around this giant <laughs> chasm called the Black Canyon. You've seen uh, Yellowstone? Oh, yeah. You need a helicopter. Yeah. <laughs> I was actually paddle boarding on Lost Lake. and uh, had I just like, went, is that Netherland, Lost Lake? Or? No, the, it's up on up Kepler, okay. Ke over Kepler Pass. Um, I was paddle boarding out there with my cowboy hat and I'd strapped my cowboy boots down on my paddle board and was paddle boarding around. And when I got back to shore, there was a whole bunch of girls standing on the shore wanting to see if I was ripped because they couldn't tell. Oh yeah. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. So I had my aviator's glasses on from when I was in the Marine Corps. So I was definitely playing the part. You got a hundred yard fake out rip. Exactly right. That's, uh, well, how big is that? How big is their ranch? Uh, I mean, that's compared to your scale, like the one in oh, Yellowstone. Yeah, no comparison. They're yeah. like 50,000 acres. 50,000. Yeah. And we're like, um, well, we all told we're about 4,000 acres. That's still quite a substantial amount of land. Yeah, but it's not owned. It's leased. Like we own okay. 500 acres now that we just purchased another ranch. And so the rest of it's leased from other landowners. Is that common? Like that arrangement? Yeah, not as common as you would think. Um, but it was a way that I was able to make it work. Um, needing more land and being able to raise more hay to feed more cows without having the capital to buy more land. Okay, so you're able to scale and just pay them like a, a monthly or annual fee and then use their land. And so rather than them have to sell the land, which yeah. they think it's gonna appreciate, so maybe they don't wanna sell it, you're, it's able to generate revenue for them while at the same time save you a bunch of fixed costs up front. So it allows you to scale your operation. Absolutely, and a lot of them is actually um, widows so their husbands uh, were cattle ranchers or hay farmers. And without their husbands, they aren't able to do the work. And so I'm yeah. able to lease it from them. They can still continue to make some income. And they want to have cattle on the land because they've just always had cattle in their lives. And so that gives them an opportunity to interact with me, interact with the cattle without having to do any of the physical work themselves. Do you, I mean, it sounds like being a rancher is a lot of hard work. Um, no surprise where it takes a, you know, a couple or... or or maybe a couple and and their children um, working on it. Is this something that like has a good return on investment, or is it more of a something you do because you like you've had cows your whole life and you don't know any other way? Well, I mean, I'm a first generation rancher, so I can tell you from my personal experience, it is for me. It it started with wanting to take better care of the land on my mother in law and father in law's ranch, and the only way that I could see to effectively do that was through cattle because you have to have ruminants on the land because the cattle urine and manure is probiotics for the soil and the soil microbes. So if you have land that doesn't have animals on it, originally it had ruminants like deer and elk and bison, mm -hmm. but now we're using cattle because we can manage them much more closely and more effectively than we're just wild ranging animals. So that's kind of where I started is um, wanting to, to, build and improve the soil because that's really the legacy that we, we leave behind. I mean, because really your good deeds within a generation are forgotten. 
So, but if you improve the land and it's better for the next generation, then that's a legacy that you can leave behind for multiple generations. How deeply dependent is the land on the ruminants that graze it? It's a, it's a hundred percent. I mean, it's literally the, the most perfect symbiotic relationship, especially if you're managing them effectively and efficiently. I've taken over land that hasn't had animals on it for decades and it is all dry, gray, oxidized forage. Um, and essentially it's dead. The soil is dead under that because they've starved all the, st- the soil microbes. And so when you put animals back on it, it's literally like you gave that land a shot of cocaine <laughs> because the next spring it comes back that so quickly. bright and green and lush because you essentially kick-started what was already in the soil. It just needed some sort of outside interaction on it. And that's the exciting thing for me is then the landowners think you're a miracle worker and they tell all their neighbors and then all their neighbors want you to manage their land as well. And this is how you wind up leasing land from a bunch of people. Yeah. And and in my neighborhood, the more that you can do close, you can just drive the cattle from one property to the next, to the next, to the next, where you don't even have to put them in a truck. You don't have to start a diesel engine. They're connected. The pots are connected. Yeah, or if they're connected by a county road, you just take them out and do a cattle drive down the county road and then into the next property. Uh, How often do you have to do that? Um... The less often, the better. So that's what I'm trying to get. I'm trying to get more properties that I can open a gate and go from one property to the next. Right. So I helped my dad move uh, move some cattle across a county road once, and it was a whole operation. We had to like put a gate up and block the whole the whole street. And the the sheriff came around. He's like, "What you guys doing?" And you know, (laughs) the amazing thing with our cattle is they're all trained to electric fence. Yeah. So I can run a half inch white electric fence ribbon even though it's not energized and they just know and they just know they're like if we're going to touch that we're going to get the shit shocked out of this so i can do it all by myself because 95 percent of the work that i do on the ranch is all by myself whether it's irrigating farming haying doctoring cattle moving cows all of that stuff pretty much i do all by myself is that a fact because we were just saying how like the you know the widows typically don't want to do that is this just a you're a badass or have you got a method and to the madness that makes it doable on your own? Cause this is usually a farmer ranch is a family operation. Is it not? Yeah. Well, I mean, my wife works in town to support my cow habit. So that's, your she's not, habit. A, yeah, exactly. That's, that's <laughs> what I tell everyone kind of half jokingly, but it's completely accurate yeah. because for the first few years that we had cattle, the ranch didn't support itself. We had to, okay. the ranch business had to be subsidized by out, outside income. Now it's actually to the point where it's profitable and I'm reinvesting the proceeds back in newer equipment, infrastructure, whether it's fencing, stock water infrastructure, all of those kinds of things. But a lot of it is because I am so hard-headed when someone else says you can't do it by yourself. It's like challenge accepted. Mm-hmm. And so, <clears throat> so that's one of the biggest things is I just, I am hard-headed enough and I like to think that I am innovative enough that I can figure out a way without needing help. And what I find is that if I have to rely on someone else, inevitably they let me down. Number one, they don't think the way that I do. And number two, they don't have the experience that I have. And they don't have the intimate personal knowledge with the cattle 
like for instance, I know the personalities of all 70 of the mother cows that we run. Really? And I know the ones that you don't mess with. And I know the ones that will walk up to you and ask to be scratched like a dog. Does anyone call you the cow whisperer? There's quite a few people that call me the cow whisperer. Okay. And honestly, I'm like the, the, the phone a friend veterinarian. So all of the small homesteaders that uh, can't afford to pay the vet to come out, typically call me so I can come and look at their critters and see if there's anything that I can do to help them. Um, because it's getting harder and harder to get a large animal vet to come out. And even if they do, just the vet calls oftentimes $600 plus any procedures that they have to do on top of that. So I, I get roped into pulling other people's calves when they have a cow having a difficult labor or lancing an abscess, you know, and, and what, whatever it happens to be, I, I just, I'm Johnny on the spot to help whenever I can. And you, you grew up here in Colorado, right? Because yep. we, were, we were talking before, like, this is doing this is not an easy place do being a rancher is not a, a, a cash cow, <laughs> uh, in, in most places and doing it here in Colorado only adds to the difficulty and then doing it on your own, you're just stacking difficulty adjustments, um, to use a Bitcoin to reference like why, I mean, is, is the land that, is it really your connection to the land here and being born here and talking about, you know, wanting to revitalize the land as a reason to get into ranching in the first place? Like, is that what brings you here or you just like hard things? Well, let's <laughs> see. Um, I was a wrestler in high school. I was a Wildlands firefighter. I worked on a fishing boat the summer I graduated from high school. You just like pain. <laughs> um, and then I was in the Marine Corps for four years. Yep. And so um, masochism probably runs deep. Yeah. And um, this was, and I've done all of those things. And ranching is a thousand X harder because there's so many fewer things that you can actually control. I was an underground coal miner for 15 years. I got crushed and broke both my legs. I have rods and screws in both of my legs and um, live with chronic pain that I've never medicated for. But it's one of those things where it's just another reminder of like the human condition and how no matter what, you can overcome whatever adversity brings you. Mm -hmm. And so you might as well do the toughest things that you can possibly do and some of the most rugged difficult country that you can you know we were talking earlier about when we i was down at white oak pastures visiting with will harris and we were talking about like the nuts and bolts of our businesses and land down there in bluffton georgia you can buy for 900 dollars an acre it rains 60 inches a year they graze 300 days out of the year you know they only have to feed hay for 60 days out of the year whereas for us here in the high desert we get about seven inches of precipitation a year and so any hay that you grow essentially has to be irrigated or sub-irrigated or you do, we have some desert annual forages that will graze, but you might be able to only graze them for a very short period of time. So if you look at the workload based on cattle ranching in Western Colorado at 7,000 feet elevation versus Bluffton, Georgia, 10 foot elevation, there is no comparison in land where we live in, in Western Colorado, is $10,000 an acre. Mm. So, I mean, we just bought a ranch that's 160 acres deeded, an 80-acre BLM um, grazing permit for $1.6 million. 
and it will never cash flow in agriculture just because it's a beautiful place to live. And, you know, you have millionaires that want to just come and recreate. So they buy land in Colorado. So we have to get creative at how we're going to cash flow, which for this property is easy. It's going to be wedding venues, Airbnb, conference centers. You know, we'll, we'll hold our next Rick Ranch's uh, beef initiative, um, Bitcoin you know, get together there this coming summer. And it's just, it's, it's a beautiful place, but you have to get creative in how to cash flow your agricultural business with other um, parallel revenue streams. Is that a recent phenomenon that it's not just enough to do the agricultural aspect and turn a profit? It is if you don't have free land, if you aren't inherited mm-hmm. land mm-hmm. and you don't have a mountain grazing permit because most of our landowners that are big cattle ranchers have commensurate ground. So they have owned ground down low that they use to raise hay and that's their winter pastures. And then they go to the forest service where they pay a a very nominal fee for grazing in the mountains. Whereas for us, we pay a cash lease on every bite of grass that our cattle eat. So we're either paying a per head per day or a per acre per year lease to all of the landowners that we lease from, except for a couple of them that we actually charge them a management fee for taking care of their land. And those are often absentee landowners that it's an investment property for them and they just Mm -hmm. want it to be green and the fences to be up. So there's some other things involved in the responsibilities of taking care of those properties. But for the most part, we pay, you know, an honest lease wage or, um, fee for everything that we do. And and I have the opportunity to say that and also have a profitable business at the same time. And so that's what's driven us to do the direct-to-consumer grass-fed and grass-finished beef market is because cut out, cut out the middleman and then we can, you know, essentially decide how every animal spends every day of its life, you know, and they only right. ever have one bad day. And, right. and, that's, and then they wind up in a wrapper and a freezer and then they're going to to feed, you know, amazing people's children and their families because that's what our goal is, is we want to try and bring the health of the soil right to the to human health as well. Right. And that's why we're so focused on making the trip over here to the front range to feed families over here that maybe don't have the opportunity to have that kind of open space um, grazing that happens on the Western Slope. Yeah, it's, um, I, I mean, I know when I, when I have your, uh, your, your cattle, it's, uh, I can, like I made a stock with it and I can, I can just smell the difference in the nutrients and get something from Walmart or King Supers or it just doesn't have the aroma uh, and certainly not the taste or the coloring. Uh, does that like, I mean, do you, do you have like some cold hard science? Cause you know, we, we really trust the science. <laughs> I mean, is there any like thing that like about that specifically? Like, so there's how a, does that help the the nutrients of the family? Well, so there's a there's a handful of things to think about there. So most of your grocery store beef is wet aged, and so what does that mean? So wet aged means that it's cut or it's killed and cooled, and then it gets cut into primals, put in a bag, and then shipped to another processing facility. Whereas all of our beef is dry aged, so it's literally hung in a cooler at the appropriate temperature to where you let all of the natural enzymes already in the beef 
start to work on the connecting tissues and the meat structure to make it more flavorful, number one, but also uh, more tender, number two. Mm, and so that's a big thing that, that people don't realize. And, and when you buy ground beef in a grocery store, it has all kinds of different animals all ground together in one, you know, Ooh. as far as different numbers of beeves. And some of that beef comes from South America, you know, it comes in in these big um, vats, refrigerator vats of trimmed lean meat, and then they blend it with the fat that comes from the feedlots here and, you know, our front range feedlots, like up around Greeley and stuff like that. Um, the other thing too, is when you're on grass all of the time, the cattle grow much slower okay. because they have to get all of their nutrients by walking to the grass and eating the grass. So they're getting more exercise as well. Whereas feedlot cattle just have to walk from the water to the feed bunk, lay down back to the water, back to the feed. So they bunk. get fatter that way. They get fatter. They, they, they grow much faster. And then oftentimes they're using hormonal implants to increase their performance as well. So it's just like anabolic steroids in humans, you know, you get really big, really fast with less effort. So they do that with steers and with heifers in the feedlots. And that's another thing that we don't do any of that. So we let cows be cows and we do our part to manage the soil, which then grows healthy grass, which then, you know, we have cows that graze healthy grass, healthy cows, happy cows, don't have to doctor cattle. And that way they're able to never be touched with any sort of pharmaceuticals ever. Mm -hmm. I mean, we, we don't do back pours for... Um, any of the internal or external parasites. We don't do any vaccination. We do, don't do any of that because what we found is if we manage the land appropriately, the cows don't get sick. Hmm. And then if any cows that do have a problem, we just cull them out of the herd and we only keep the one, ones that really work well in our system. And then we keep the replacement heifers out of them as well. And the herd continues to get stronger and stronger and stronger just through herd immunity. So this is like a the real herd immunity. <laughs> um, this is a low time preference sort of approach to ranching juxtaposed on the, you know, quick turn a profit fiat way of, uh, of ranching that is what we're getting in our grocery stores. Absolutely. The other thing too, is then we can be price makers and not price takers. Most cow calf people, you know, they, they uh, pre-sell their calves at whatever the market's going to be for that year. Whereas for us, we can literally say, okay, this year steers are going to be 685 a pound uh, hanging weight, including processing. That's the price that we're going to make. We're not just going to just take whatever the market will give us. And so that's another thing that sets us apart. So we can actually budget. Okay, we have 40 beeves that we're going to butcher this year. This is what our gross um, income is going to be. And that can help us with our margins to know what we can do as far as, like this year I bought a new round baler. I swore I was going to get out of the haymaking business because it's expensive to keep old equipment running and I have a lot of old equipment. Mm -hmm. I mean, when I start talking about old equipment, I have equipment that's only three or four years younger than I am. So, I mean, in, in There's the hay low time preference yeah, right there. Yeah, that's right. In the haymaking business, it has to be running when you need it because you have this short window of time to put up hay. Right. So because of that, I decided to buy a new, and now it's not brand new, it's a used round baler, but it's practically brand new. And 
my neighbor is who had it and he'd went to big square bales. So he's not using it anymore. He offered to owner carry it for me. And so not only did I have the opportunity to use a, a new baler, which coupled perfectly with my newer tractor, but also makes fantastic bales. And then I can bail when I want to. So that's mm-hmm. one of those things where when you are a price maker, then you can see what your budget is going to be. You don't have to go to the bank and get a loan to try and buy a piece of equipment or try and pay to put in some stock water infrastructure or whatever. Whereas everyone else is like, okay, we're going to try and market our calves at X amount of dollars a pound. We're not sure what they're going to weigh then, if they're going to be too light or too heavy, whether we can fulfill our contract and how much we're actually going to get. So then they have to go out and get an operating loan to be able to pay their bills in the meantime. Whereas for us, we're like, okay, we have 40 head. This is what our gross margin is going to be. This is how much money we have to play with. And so then you can work backwards on your budget. And that's super important in ag because there are so many variables that you just can't control. The other thing, too, is we don't do any um, USDA um, insurance because there aren't really any for pasture. There is one for drought. And it is kind of based on how many days you can graze or they'll help pay for trucking of hay if you have to buy hay. But as far as like actual forage, like they do in row crops, like you can, you can do a production insurance on soybeans or corn, wheat, barley, all of those things. You can buy an insurance premium. And if you don't raise X amount of bushels per acre, you just get a check you know, from a USDA subsidized insurance agency. Mm. So that's one of those things too, is where the more things you can control, because like I was saying earlier, ranching is the hardest thing I've ever done because there's so much of it you just absolutely can't control. Mm -hmm. You just have to prepare for the worst, hope for the best, (laughs) and you have to be quick enough on your feet to realize it's time to pivot and do something different um, because at a moment's notice, you might have a huge snowstorm Mm. in the middle of calving and you need to gather all those cows that are getting ready to calve in closer, or you need to bed them in straw or corn stalks or something so those cows and calves can get out of the snow. Otherwise, those cows will freeze to death. So you just have to be able to be prepared for that at a moment's notice to do whatever you can um, to be as successful as you can be. There's another uh, difference between a ranch in Georgia and Colorado, they're not having to worry about sudden snowstorms that are, that are coming about. True story. I mean, they may have to deal with a tropical storm or something, but still no, no freezing weather. Those got some notice, you know, you know, it's coming. Yeah. Uh, I mean, given how difficult it is and how, I mean, there's parts of it you must love, right? Like, uh, I mean, what, what, what are your favorite, some of the favorite parts about working the, working the ranch and your, what did you say, cow? Cow habit. Yep, cow habit, exactly. Yeah. Well, I mean, so one of the things that, that I really love is interacting with my customers, right? Because my customers are paying a premium premium over the grocery store, and they care enough about their health and their family's health to source their meat from me. Mm-hmm. So I, and I really care about that. So that's like the kindred spirit that we have. This time of year, with the fall in the air and looking out how heavy our calves are, how big the calves are that we're going to wean this year, shows me that our genetics are working, how we're managing the land is working because we're growing better forage that's, you know, the cows are in better condition, the calves are in better condition. I love to see when we implement an intensive rotational grazing system and you see how much 
better the pasture gets, how much thicker it gets, how you have more diversity in species of grasses and legumes, how you can just do that through management. And then I love it when the naysayer neighbors, conventional cattlemen are like, how did you do that again? You know, because they're the ones that said, oh, that'll never work and you'll go bankrupt and on and on and on and on and on. And now they're like, they want to know, like, what's the secret sauce? Why are you, you know, you're out there moving a quarter mile of electric fence every day and moving cows every day. Like, how can that be, you know, labor efficient? I'm like, well, I haven't fed any hay yet. You know, I have grass left over. So the money that I saved by not feeding hay, I more than paid for my hour a day of building electric fence or tearing electric fence down just by utilizing the Ford standing. And then the next spring, you can see how much thicker and more lush the, the mm. pastures are than the year before. And so you have this lone time preference. I mean, that's how we, that's how we get this marriage between Bitcoiners and ranchers mm -hmm. is like, is we're not looking at instant gratification because we know nothing good happens overnight. Right. I mean, you actually have to put in the sweat equity to be able to really get that return on investment. And that's, it's, that's the thing why, you know, we have this kindred spirit with Bitcoin and ranchers and the store of value in the land and in the soil. And like you were saying earlier in the cattle, which I think of cattle as more of a liquid asset because as high as cattle prices are right now, it'd be a fantastic time if someone wanted to get out of the cattle market to completely liquidate and put all that money in Bitcoin. <laughs> You know, if that's what you wanted to do. Why don't you do that? Well, because then this chain of custody of land improvement would be broken. Right. And so I can continue to, you know, stack my stack by accepting Bitcoin for payment for beef at the same time that I'm building soil and saving the planet. Right. So it's not just a profit maximization effort for you. That's exactly right. Because the profit really <laughs> is in the legacy, right? My kids see the job that we do and the improvements that we've made, they don't necessarily want to work that hard, <laughs> but on the same token, they see the value in it. And like our son just turned 16, he was talking about going to MIT, super smart. He's off the charts on smarts. And I said, well, how are you going to pay for it? I mean, if you can't get a full ride scholarship, how are you going to pay for it? And he said, well, I don't know. I'll just do student loans. And then he's like, no, I don't want to do student loans. He says, that's irresponsible. He says, that's just bad business because more than likely I'm not going to get a job that's going to pay well enough to have a mortgage and student loans. So or, on his own, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So on his own, he's looking at the Air Force Academy because he's into cybersecurity. Mm -hmm. You know, he runs a VPN and he has his own cold storage for his Bitcoin. I'm mean, all right. of those things. And, uh, I was like, perfect, bud. I mean, go on their website. You can see all the jobs that go right in. So they, they'll pay for you to go to college. You'll do your commitment. You can either choose to stay in and double dip, stay in, retire, and then go in, you know, to industry after that. Right. Or you can do finish your time out and go from there and roll right into a civilian job. So that's what he's looking for now is going into the Air Force Academy. But he has learned the work ethic that you learn from living on a cattle ranch. When I have a calf that needs to be fed a bottle at three o'clock in the morning because the mom had a difficult labor, 
He gets kicked out of bed. He goes and makes the bottle and he goes feeds the baby while I'm taking care of the mom. You know, it's one of those things where it's just part of living on a ranch, learning that responsibility, but also the super important ability to have this recognition of what, what you can control. Hmm. So many people are just completely powerless. They're like, oh, I don't know what to do. Whereas when you're on a ranch, you can't do that because oftentimes you're by yourself. Like dad said, we need to move the cows from here to here and they go through the fence. Right. Well, you can't just throw yourself down and have a tantrum. You got to figure out how to go get them back in, fix the fence and, and go back to the original, you know. So you have this problem solving that you learn by growing up on a ranch because you don't have a choice. It's a, there's a level of like resilience that is developed within the person. And I can imagine just thinking about, like, we didn't have a family ranch until I was already in college, so I never got to grow up on that. But uh, there's a level of, like, personal responsibility there that is evident from how you're describing it. And I think Bitcoin probably has this, develops those traits in a different route, but there's some shared values there because, you know, watching your, uh, let's say you've got, you know, most of your net worth in Bitcoin because uh, you really believe in it, like, watching it go down by 75% and and not throwing a tantrum and, or, or getting in the self-pity, self-blame game and instead just saying, well, we got, you know, it's time to build, right? There's failure excuses are are not an option uh, in, in either, it sounds like. It's just carry on. Well, and that's an interesting thing with uh, the parallels between cattle and Bitcoin is the time to buy cattle is when the cattle market is down. So not right now. But you not right now for sure. So if you have extra capital, buy undervalued classes of cattle when they're down, as long as you have the grass to feed them, and then you capitalize on that down market. It's the exact same thing with Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. I mean, because I I accepted Bitcoin for beef when it was at sixty five thousand. So so <laughs> right. so so you look at what what I got for the beef then versus I've sold beef at 17,000. Yeah. And so, so you look at you, you look at what, you know, it's all part of the same thing. As soon as you start equating your stack with the USD value of it, lost you're, the point. Yeah, you've completely lost the point. So that's that the thing for me is when Bitcoin was pumping of course, I was looking at it because at that time I was looking at it as an investment because I had my eye on a skid steer. Mm -hmm. So when it got to $68,000, I sold some Bitcoin and paid cash <laughs> for a timing. skid store, a skid steer. You know? And of course, the first thing I did was put the bucket on it and put my wife in it. And I said, do you have any dirt that you need moved around? <laughs> and so she, I taught her how to use it. And she's like, I will never push a wheelbarrow across this <laughs> ranch ever again. So she says, this is the best piece of equipment you've ever bought. Uh, yeah. There's a, so uh, yeah, have something I've learned over the last few years is that and like, you know, Bitcoin's great, but there's no amount of Bitcoin that's going to, if you're looking for that to make you feel, feel better or feel success in life, there's no, no number that's going to do it. And whereas, you know, you know life is, is short and it's temporary and, if you can add to your, you know, way of life by not having to, you know, do really hard manual labor, like by, you know, nixing the wheelbarrow for good, then money, money will spent, right? And Absolutely. And so then the next implement that I bought was a post hole auger 
So now it's it's to drill post post, holes. Yeah. Yeah, So instead of digging them by hand, now I can use a piece of equipment. And of course, when you have 4,000 acres of land that you're responsible for, that's a lot of post holes to fix (laughs) and fence to replace and all of that. So when you're getting new equipment, do you, do you, take into account the financial aspect too? Or is it mostly like, I just, I don't want to do this manually anymore and I'm getting it, it's a quality of life? It typically comes to the point when I have a windfall mm. of income and it's then it's a depreciable asset. Mm. So typically I try and think of it like that, but also I try and keep um, some liquid cash just specifically for opportunity. Because oftentimes... Don't listen to that, guys. Yeah, because oftentimes, <laughs> um, you know, opportunity does not arise. And so if you have the cash to jump on some of the opportunities of someone else's hardships, mm-hmm. you can totally capitalize on that. It's like buying the dip when Bitcoin goes down. If you don't have the liquid cash because you're 100% in Bitcoin, then you can't take advantage of the opportunity. For sure. And, and that's the thing for me is I try and transact in Bitcoin as much as I can. Yeah. You know, I buy wine in Bitcoin and I buy... Uh, from Ben. Pro, yeah, exactly. Protein, he was on the show. Pro, protein bars, you know. Um, from uh, Alpa. Alpa. Yeah. <laughs> Such a it's, small community. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, so, you know, and that's, and they buy. Don't they buy that beef, beef from, from you? <laughs> so the in the Bitcoin. Of exactly. So it's all about circular, the circular economy of Bitcoin. When Ben starts uh, putting the leftover, like the grape scraps, like after they're squeezed in your field to, uh, for, uh, to make the soil better, it's really. Well, We've gone full circle. Yeah, exactly. Of course, the problem is, is he's bogarting that for his vineyards himself. You oh, know? right, because yeah. he's got to grab it. Yeah. Sure, sure, sure. Sure. It, uh, is, is this whole, like, Bitcoin circular economy, is this, like, I mean, because you started the ranch before you were into Bitcoin, right? Way before. I, I was first introduced to Bitcoin in 2017 okay. by a, a relative of ours. So his wife is my wife's cousin, and he's a Bay Area financial guy. And he's like, have you heard about Bitcoin? And I was like, I heard about it. And I don't, I'm not, I'm not interested in your scam. Thanks. Yes. Well, and I was like, <laughs> it's Harry, Harry Potter money, right? Okay, like it's right. like, it's, uh, it's and then you realize all of, money's Harry Potter money. <laughs> and, and actually before that, I already knew the U S dollar is only driven by consumer confidence. Right. Right. Cause you can see how easily that's manipulated. Were you into like gold and stuff before? Mm-hmm. Okay. Gold. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So this is a pretty natural next step there. It's right. like, Oh, it's gold, but they can't forge it. They can't take it from me physically. I'll be in here. And, and it's light. It's right. It's I a, mean, it's, I don't need anything to have it. Right. It's and so number. I, so I started down the rabbit hole, you know, then, and I, so I, I read, um, the Bitcoin standard first after I read the Satoshi's white paper, Mm -hmm. which actually made more sense. I'm a very technical mind. I was a a electrician in the Marine Corps and then I was a electrician, uh, federally licensed mining electrician. And so when, when you start looking at the, the mechanics of it, it just makes total sense to me, uh, especially from the standpoint of the checks and balances involved and how it's completely open source but mm-hmm. it's also everything's completely transparent because that's one thing that you know that with the government's three sets of books there's you never know what's really happening behind the curtain whereas with bitcoin it's 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 immutable right and so um so i so i was i was 
spent at that time, I was like, well, how, how can I get some? Like, what does that look like? And so I started looking at exchanges. And that's when I really started listening to some podcasts about Bitcoin, you know, not your keys, not your corn, you know, and all of that stuff. Stay humble, stack sats. And, uh, and now you're on a then it was like yeah and it's like then it was a no-brainer for me as far as to accept bitcoin for beef okay because that way i can get other people's bitcoin that they got however whether they did dos cost dollar average whatever however they were getting it i can get it from them and nobody knows that i have it other than this series of letters and numbers you know in this transaction history um and then that was when I was turned on to the importance of, you know, having a hardware wallet and, you know, seed phrase and all, all of that stuff. Um, so then, of course, I had to buy a Start9 node, you know, sure. uh, paid in Bitcoin. I bought a couple of S9 miners. Um, they make great space, space heaters. Right. Um, and so it's it was, it, I went all in, obviously. What um, we were we were talking about, like the principles of, of Bitcoin and sort of how the, the immutability, the transparency. I mean, is there, are there certain? Because it seems like the values uh, that Bitcoin sort of evidences resonate with you. And is there certain parts of that that you incorporate into your business, like not Bitcoin related, just like ways of thinking about problem solving or ways of living? Yeah, and that's the that's probably one of the things that turned me on to Bitcoin is the way that we ranch is complete transparency, honesty. It, it's based on consumer confidence in the product that we bring to market. I want people mm-hmm. to come and see what we do. I want them to ask all of the hard questions because... I'm also coaching them on what they should ask all of the producers that they buy food from. And the producer... Don't don't trust, verify. (laughs) That's exactly right, (laughs) you know. And and so it's one of those things that if you are afraid to ask those questions, then you don't prioritize your health. Mm -hmm. Just like if you don't ask those questions of your finances, then you don't you aren't prioritizing your financial security as well. And so those things just really go hand in hand. I don't know that Bitcoin has necessarily changed anything about the way that I live other than it has brought a whole nother fold of people. It's a, it's another layer of friendships and colleagues that think so similarly about so many things right and through the internet and social media we're able to share and build each other up and network and help one another in ways that you never would have even thought like a couple years ago i blew a tire out on my swather and i posted a picture you know in a little oh my gosh this tire costs x amount of dollars on twitter saw that and how many people said, send me a Bitcoin address? Right. And they, they just sent me Bitcoin to help me, right? They, they respect what I do. They feel the pain of maybe not necessarily having the resources at that time to be able to do what I needed to do. 
but it was an, a way for them to help me in a, through, through a transaction process that can't be shut off. Mm-hmm. You look at what they did with the Canadian truckers. Right. This is a way to completely circumvent all of the, the censorship that happens in modern societies today. And so you can help one another. You can support the causes that you are passionate about and no one can do anything about it. <laughs> yeah. And you have a, another way to transact with customers uh, as well. And how is that? How has Bitcoin like affected your your business? Because I know you said you started it, started ranching well before you were into Bitcoin in 2017. Have you has you seen your business grow in a meaningful way? And in what ways has interacting with the Bitcoin community or accepting Bitcoin as a medium of exchange, like how, or, or are you holding it over your balance sheet as a store of value over time? Like how has it really transformed your business and has it helped? I, I imagine it's helped. For sure. And a great thing about a lot of Bitcoiners are they're also health conscious, right? So they eat a lot of meat because they know the importance of a carnivore diet or even a, um, paleo diet, whatever that happens to be. So they eat a lot of meat. So that means they spend more money on meat and they choose to source the highest quality that they can find. They realize the shortcuts that fiat food takes and just like they take shortcuts with the money and take shortcuts with the food, it sort of turtles all the way down. Exactly right. Yeah. And so that's one of those things that I'm able to, to meet them where they're at and then we're able to transact in Bitcoin. A little side note of that is many of them... I mean, some of them would pay me on strike and instead of swiping to pay in Bitcoin, they would swipe to pay in fiat. And of course, when I would call them out on that, like, what the heck, you know, some of them didn't even realize it. Some of it were sheepish, like, oh, well, we thought you needed dollars or whatever that happened to be. And there's a, a handful of hardcore Bitcoin customers of mine who were, they were just hodlers and they refused to transact in Bitcoin. And of course, I was like, okay, I see you on social media saying this and that and that and this, and I see you at this Bitcoin and that bit and that, and, but you won't pay me in Bitcoin. Right. And so they've all folded. They're like, okay, well, we are transacting only in Bitcoin now going forward. Yeah. And, and that's great. And so I would say last year, about 10% of my meat sales were transacted in Bitcoin. 10%. Oh, that's uh, how many of that, per, how many percentage would you say was Bitcoiners in general, like people who we've met through the community in one way or the other? Probably 30%. So more than half of them are still paying in fiat. Fiat, yep. And, and, they, and want, they, they want to spend their dirty fiat and give it to you. <laughs> well, and, and that's what's interesting is many of the ones that transact in fiat pay paper bills, cash, because mm. they're like, this is still a way for us to transact untraceable right knowing i can't more buy, untraceable i can't pay you know for diesel with bitcoin yet sure right or um, you've got to sell it and then you've got to right do the accounting on your balance sheet yep pay capital gains and all the accounting of when gains. what what the, what the <laughs> what gains yeah. <laughs> well from twenty four thousand to twenty seven nine sure I mean, sure right so right. Yeah. But anyway, you can have creative accounting too to account for that as well. So, so, and that's so, um, 
And so, and so I've sold Bitcoin. I still sell Bitcoin whenever I need to. If there's a bill that I have to pay and I don't money. have fiat, you know, it's just I use it as money. Granted, I, I committed to, to sweep a certain amount of it into cold storage. Um, yeah. Number one, because I'm comfortable and confident that it will be a long-term store of value, multi-generational wealth. Um, also, it just aligns with my goals in my life, in my business, in my family. Uh, so that's, it just, it feels good. And also, of course, it keeps me current on interacting with my hardware wallet as sure. well. <laughs> Yeah, those, if you don't turn them on for a few years, you're like, "What's my PIN code again?" <laughs> That's right. How do I how do I enter in the number on the ledgers? Or That's right. Where's that piece of steel that I had that stamped in? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I deal with that a lot in my day job at Casa, just reminding people mm-hmm. that they aren't as good, their memories aren't as good as they think they are. Well, and the, and the reality is, is human nature it's is just human you nature. hit a, you hit a point where it's just like, huh? And you want to be able to? I mean, at least for me, like. You know, I was in finance before Bitcoin, and I came to Bitcoin really as a way to get rid of the complexities of, of, of financial planning. And, and I saw it as a way where, okay, if I just have this tool that I can hold value through over time, I can go out and live my life and not have to be thinking about this. Because, you know, we only get so many days on this earth, right? And I want to spend as little of them as possible thinking about the stresses of managing, meeting goals, managing finances, and... I want to spend more of that time out in nature and and with people I love and um, so, but even still, Bitcoin requires some level of of management, uh, just like just like a herd would, you know. For sure, and, and then that's the other thing, you know, that you were saying earlier about like personal responsibility. Mm-hmm. Like if you if you aren't personally responsible, one boating accident right. and everything goes away. You know, when they say twelve percent of all of the coins that are going to be gone, are already lost. gone for forever. That's that's a pretty scary number. What are some uh, What are some of the things that that concern you with the the rancher life? Like, obviously, we're talking about like losing your Bitcoin. And that's being a devastating thing. Like, are there any fears that you know keep you up at night about the ranching life? Like a a disease or a fire or you know weather or or something that I'm not even thinking of. Well, probably, I mean, we have, you know, Colorado voted to reintroduce the wolf. And that's one of those things that if you look at the the centers that they're going to re, do reintroduction or they're trying to do reintroduction, it's in Big Ranch Cattle Company or country. And so from a rancher standpoint, you know, we have a right as ranchers to protect our stock because the the brand laws predate any of our civil laws in this state. So a lot of the brand laws, you know, in in livestock rights or before any of the, the criminal laws were even passed because it was when Colorado was a territory before statehood. And so in that, if you have someone rustling, you can use whatever force necessary to keep someone from stealing your cattle. If you have dogs, wild dogs, pet dogs, whatever, if they're worrying your cattle, you can use lethal means to stop them. Uh, same thing with bears, same thing with mountain lions, same thing with coyotes. Well, because wolves are a federally protected endangered species, um, they have said that you cannot kill wolves if they are worrying your livestock. 
from my personal standpoint, you would be hard to prove that a rancher killed the wolves. This sounds like an episode of Yellowstone. If you can't find them. Right. (laughs) So it's one of those things that, uh, it, that, that worries me. Number one, it worries me from the standpoint that we had enough voters in the state of Colorado to not realize that Colorado was an agricultural state to think that injury introducing wolves would be a good idea. Uh-huh. So that goes to show how far removed from their food system they are and also the financial resources necessary to raise cattle. We already had our first wolf-confirmed kills in this state, and it was some of the goriest because wolves kill for fun. That's one of the things that nobody talks about. They kill for sport, and they don't always necessarily kill. Oftentimes they will just maim. And if you see what that looks like in seven and 800 pound steers where they've ripped their hindquarters apart and left them lay, or they've uh, hamstrung them where they rip the back of their hamstrings out to where their back legs don't work and then eat their rectums and part of their guts while they're still alive. Oh my um, it, it's a whole nother level of, of um, just gruesome reality, nature that nobody talks about. And of course right. that wasn't ever in any of the Let's reintroduce the wolf voting that happened. But right. that that's the realities. And if you go to Montana, you could see it every day because they deal with grizzly bears and wolves there. And if you talk to ranchers there, it is a it's a it's a full-time fight to protect your stock from grizzly bears and wolves. Another thing that they just don't have to deal with down in Georgia. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Cotton mouth is about you, as bad as it gets. You like the uh, type two fun. Huh? That yeah, like. that's right. What, uh, I mean, I think it's interesting you talk about the sort of the, the side of nature that, you know, because most people in Colorado, they think nature, they're like, oh, the 14ers and the mountain, alpine lakes and the beautiful scenery and the, open skies and oh that's great and dandy but nature's got a you know a dark side to it too and more gruesome but well and so one thing that goes hand in hand with the beautiful landscapes is us as humans doing our part to manage all of those landscapes to the best of our abilities for about the last 50 years, the Forest Service has completely fallen on their face as far as managing the forests. It was a hands-off policy. And, you know, we talk about climate change is what's causing all these forest fires. It's actually because we haven't let them burn mm-hmm. on small scales. We haven't selectively logged them or we haven't adequately grazed them with cattle or sheep. So mismanagement is oftentimes the biggest contributing factor to a lot of these huge forest fires that we've had. And, and, and that's completely due to the education of the foresters. And that's the same thing that we end up running into with agronomy and range management is when a third party, oftentimes big ag or big pharma, has an agenda and they're funding the land grant universities that are teaching the curriculum for the next generation of agronomists or range managers or whatever, they're teaching what's going to make them the most money. Mm. And so that teaches management practices in cattle, which makes you reliant on pharmaceutical drugs, on row crop feed to feed cattle in feedlots. Whereas 
what I've done, and honestly, is from my grandfather. So my my mom's dad, Albert Martinez, grew up in the San Luis Valley of Colorado. His family had a Beautiful sheep ranch. And um, I was the only grandchild of 27 grandkids that showed any interest in agriculture at all. They had a small family farm in Olathe, Colorado. And from the time I was about eight years old, I would just love to spend as much time there as I could because I loved the animals. I loved the land. I didn't realize just how passionate I was about the practices and animal husbandry and stewardship of the land. But he imparted so much of his knowledge and experience and love of the land and the animals on me. I oftentimes will hear his voice in the back of my mind saying, you know, Mijito, you got to pay attention to what the grass is telling you. You know, it's telling you it needs more grazing or it's telling you it needs less grazing, more rest or that, you know, those, the cows are too fat, you know, you need to move them less and make them eat more of that rough forage. The, the things that he learned by watching, which helped me to, to term the, the phrase observational science, because if you pay attention and you teach yourself to pay attention and use all of your senses, mm -hmm. you're able to do what a forage analysis or a liver biopsy or a genetic test or whatever it happens to be, just by using your eyes and your ears and your taste and your sense of smell and the feel of the soil in your hands, you can do that yourself, but it takes time and you have to be completely intentional about being able to do that. There's a, there's a level of connectedness that nature sort of brings out in people, um, a presence, if you will. I think our society is so fixated on one thing to the next to the next. Then there's, you know, like afraid of quiet and afraid of nothing. Like, you know, somebody's waiting for an elevator and they will pull out their phone because they can't just sit there in presence for 10 seconds while the elevator's coming. And it's, I, I, part of me thinks this is like by design because it's like a consumerist mentality where it's like you need to be buying or consuming or something at all times where um, sounds like we share that vision where it's like if you, if you just sit and really pay attention and use, use what you already have at your disposal, be amazed at what, how much you can actually see uh, and hear and experience and what your intuition can pick up on. Right? Well, and that's, you know, one of those things that we use a lot is common sense isn't as common anymore. <laughs> sure, yeah. And that's because we have to have something. We have to have something feeding us stimulation all the time. And we want to be in control of it. Whereas Mother Nature is feeding you signals all the time. Right. You just have to put away the distractions and let it flow in through you. That's one thing I love about animals is that they um, they have made me more present. Uh, spending time with cattle at the farm, uh, spending time with dogs, and juxtapose that on humans. And animals can teach you a lot about life. Nature can teach you a lot about life, but the gruesome aspect of the wolves the you know the peaceful aspect of a cow just grazing um it's it's really you know when you look at a dog for example like dog is not thinking about 
you know, that thing you said to it yesterday. And it's certainly not worried about, you know, is this, is that female dog going to call me back? You know, because exactly. <laughs> they don't even have a phone or, right. or an idea, but there's just a level of presence that permeates through so many animals, um, through all animals. I think we're probably the only animals that are cursed with a lack of presence most of the time. Is there... Uh, well, and that's there's an old rancher friend of mine. He says, you know what I figured out? He says, when I wa lock my wife and my dog in the trunk of my car, when I open the trunk, the dog is always happy to see me. <laughs> the wife, not so much. Not know, so shocker. much. <laughs> that's, that's good. That's good. I'm have to remember that one. Um, yeah, is there any kind of like lessons or big takeaways that you've learned about yourself from being a rancher or spending time with animals? I mean, aside from that, you know, presence and, and really just being there and observing. Probably the biggest thing is we're way tougher than we think we are. I mean, we can face much greater hardships, whether it's physical hardships, mental hardships, emotional hardships. We can literally do oftentimes 10 times more than we think we are capable of. And the, the reason that we can is because we're engineered and designed to survive. Mm -hmm. You know, that's, that's uh, my wife is a registered nurse and she worked in surgery for a long time. And one of the uh, anesthesiologists used to say, it's really hard to kill people because most people want to live. And, uh, of course, that's, that was kind of a joke, but kind of not. And so, so humans, we have evolved to survive. But oftentimes we've been told by the mothers of America, that's one of my drill instructor phrases, you know, the mothers of America have ruined you boys because you're just a bunch of wussies, you mm -hmm. know. You aren't nearly as tough enough as, you know. But it's because... Now everybody has to wear a bike helmet and everyone has to wear a seatbelt. No one can ride in the back of a truck and all of those things. The things that we did, my generation growing up, and we survived, most of us survived from, we learned don't touch the stove because it's hot and you'll get burned. Right. Or slow down because when you wreck the four-wheeler at 65 miles an hour, you're really going to get messed up. And just all of these things, Right. We're way tougher than we allow ourselves. And, and oftentimes, even if you're working out in the gym, you have another 20% even when you think, I'm shot. Yeah. And the way that I know that is because when you've put in a hard two-hour workout in the gym and then you have to go sort cows or you have cows out on the county road and you don't think you have enough, you still have to get that wire gate open right. to get those cows put back in. Or when this cow has you down on the ground and she's going to smash you and kill you because she, she thinks you're messing with her calf, you have enough strength to get up and climb out of the corrals. So you still have a whole bunch that you left in the, that you didn't completely you know put out at the gym. And so then that's with anything like, oh, I don't know how I'm going to pay this bill or I don't know how I'm going, whatever it happens to be, there is always more. You're just letting your mind hold you back from what your real potential is. Yeah, our mind is our biggest obstacle. Also, our, maybe our greatest gift, uh, but it's... Yeah, arguably it's, so, it's yeah. It's funny, funny how that, uh, that winds up being the case. Um, like hearing you talk about the difficulties of being a rancher in Colorado. It's like there's something that 
you must have learned that you, in a way that these trials and, and difficulties, you, you know, I said something about type two fun, like you must enjoy them in some way because you, you have the level of wisdom to understand that those actually make you better and stronger. And they, they teach you things about yourself and pull, pull more out of the gas tank than you thought you had in you. Um, it's, do you think that this is just like the, the human condition or, or is this part of maybe our, our current culture that maybe, cause you said like before you know, your generation wasn't babied in the same way or coddled, right? Is this just like a temporary phenomenon or are we, is this how we're headed? No, I think we're going, I actually, I think we're going back there. You know, the, the old saying that uh, strong men wake easy times, right? Yeah. Easy times make, make weak, weak men. men. And yeah. so, so we're, so we're in the cycle of going back. Yeah. And if you look at, you know, the fall of the Roman empire, all of the same things that eroded the Roman empire, we are repeating and history repeats itself. Right. And we're, we're there. And so you have the people who are the leaders, the thought leaders, the, the, um, experience and teachers and that that's what I'm doing. Everyone that will listen to me or anyone that wants to come out and see what we do and why we do it. I do my very best to try and impart whatever information they need because most people just can't handle the sheer volume. I mean, I've been doing this for 15 years and I am 40 years from having it figured out. I know that I learn so much new every day just in what I'm doing that, I mean, I will probably die before I have it figured out. The thing that I oh, figured out now is that I have a viable business that if I am a good steward of all of my resources, that's my people resources, my customers, my helpers, my wife and kids, you know, my parents, and my, if I'm a good, if I do a good job by those resources, then the financial resources take care of themselves. Mm -hmm. And if I do a good job managing my resources with my soil resources, grass, cattle resources, then they essentially take care of themselves as well. And it took me a long time trying to force it, like try, trying to find the prescription in all of those relationships to just make it work. What I realized is the, all of that is out of my hands. All I can do is control what I can control in me and do my best by all of those resources. And that was, that was hard for me because I've, in my whole life, I've been able to force whatever it was to make it work. Mm -hmm. Just work harder, work more hours, you know, talk a better game, whatever happened to be. And, and with, with people and animals, you know, and your finances, you just can't force it. You have to just approach it with an open heart and open hands and, and the good flows into you as well as the bad, but you just have to learn how to deal with the bad. This uh, reminds me of a, there's a line in the Tao Te Ching. Uh, have you heard of that book? Mm -hmm. There's a line about the uh, heaven and earth. Uh, rains can't last all day. Um, and if heaven and earth can't, last forever what makes a man think that he can force something if uh if even nature can't force rain forever 
and it remi- it, something I've learned too is is that is what you're talking about. The, like the more we try to control things that are out of our control, the more we flail, the more we struggle, and, and we wind up getting the same result as if we hadn't, but just wasted a bunch of extra energy and maybe mental anguish. Whereas if we go with the flow of what's supposed to happen, um, you know, if there's rain, adapt. If there's a disease, adapt. Fire, adapt. If they release wolves into the dim climate, adapt. That's right. Um, well, that's the interesting thing with disease. So through our practices in taking care of the soil, that's taking care of the disease problem for us. Mm-hmm. I mean, I haven't treated a sick calf of our own in... 18 months. That's unusual, right? That's not like most ranching operations. That's not the case. That's completely correct. And because I'm actually babysitting some cattle for another cattle rancher, he sold his farm here on the front range and moved to the Western slope and didn't have any place for his cows. So I took his cows in and I've been running them co-mingled with mine. And I think we had to doctor one cow and three calves for pink eye. And so that's a bacterial infection in their eye, oftentimes carried by flies. Um, Typically they get their primary irritation from tall grass. And because we had such a big rain year, the grass was super tall. And so we were fighting tall grass. Well, the last time we had a big pink eye outbreak on our ranch, all of the calves that had pink eye, I sold because we had to doctor them with antibiotics and glue eye patches on their eyes because that bacteria is uh, um, photoreactive. So it needs sunlight to grow. So if you can shade out their eye, it helps them heal up um, and the bacteria won't grow. And then you give them a shot of antibiotics also to help boost their immune system. And we sold all of the cows that had mothered those calves that had pink eye, and that was essentially the last time we had pink eye in our herd. Hmm. So they all got exposed. There was like five or six calves and one cow of ours that actually got you know pink eye bad enough that they had to be treated. And so then that fall when we sorted, anything that had pink eye and that one cow we sold and we haven't had pink eye since. Right, like a herd immunity. True herd immunity. Speaking of herds, I, I was reading um, on the Beef Initiative's Twitter. They were talking about, or actually, I guess first, uh, maybe what could you give a couple sentences like, what is the Beef Initiative? But then, what is the uh, herd share ban that they were talking about? That seems like it's a big deal. For sure. Okay, so the Beef Initiative is a is a grassroots organization, and it was initially started to give every farmer and rancher a voice. Because right now you have all these multinational organizations that are the voice of the cattle rancher. And oftentimes they're not speaking on behalf of every individual rancher. They're speaking on the industry. And so the Beef Initiative allows every individual farmer or rancher to come into the Beef Initiative, list their website, their farm practices, and all of those things on the Beef Initiative website and gives them the opportunity and the resources that if they wanted to do a conference on their own place, we can do that. If they need help uh, building their own processing facility, we have the infrastructure in place to help and advise in that. Um, so really, that's what the Beef Initiative is. And what has it been, two and a half years ago, 
yeah, two and a half years ago, somewhere in there, Slim, Texas Slim called me. Well, we, we, we exchanged information on Twitter. And uh, so it started on Twitter. It started on Twitter. And, and so were you I, and him the founding sort of members? So, so, so Slim is the, is the, is he's the Hefe. It was his yeah. brainchild, right? He, he was the, he was the guy that was crazy enough to think it up. Mm-hmm. Then you have JP Valdez and Cole of KNC Cattle and myself were the f- first four, like the founding members of that. Now, Justin Trammell. Um, uh, Turbluen Beef down in Texas. He's also part of the advisory committee because he's built his own processing facility down there in Texas. So it's a state inspective facility. Um, so that gives us the background on the processing end of it. But Slim reached out to me. And so I gave him my phone number. I said, just call me. And so we talked. And the first time we talked, we talked like two and a half hours. And I was thinking to myself, this SOB is just crazy enough I work <laughs> that that that's someone who has the vision of what I've been trying to do for the last 10 years by myself to and not made much headway. And so from that, it kind of just built out from there. You know, the first conference was in Kerrville, Texas. Then the next one was at our ranch in Crawford, Colorado. Then we went to White Oak Pastures in Bluffton, Georgia. And then the last one was at um, Bitcoin Park in Nashville in conjunction with the U.S. Cattlemen's National Convention. Mm. And so we were able to talk about beef and Bitcoin to the U.S. Cattlemen's. And that group of people, cattlemen across the country, they're pretty much no bullshit, right? right? And, and so they asked all the hard questions. And luckily we had um, Matt O'Dell was there. Uh, we had um, myself, Cole, Slim, um, who else is there? Anyways, you had you had the experts and all of those different things to be able to to cross pollinate and and discuss where Bitcoin and beef and the beef industry work together. I had a great conversation with one of the ranchers talking about H two A workers. So you could have a work visa through another country to come in and work, and what his workers would have to do is pay these huge fees to, to, to ha- send that money back home, you know? And I was like, well, Bitcoin fixes that. And this is how, and he was like, that makes total sense. I said, the other thing too, is you, if you have a place that you're going back to that has a Bitcoin ATM, you could send it to your wife down there, no exposure. She can literally go to the Bitcoin ATM and pull out whatever local fiat currency is out of the Bitcoin ATM. And so, so, so we were talking about all the things that Bitcoin fixes, right? right? And, and it's, and it's, it's so multi-level and it's so beneficial and it's so easy. It's so straightforward to, to do. So like anybody that asked me anything about Bitcoin is like, get out your smartphone, download a wallet. I want to give you $50 worth of Bitcoin just to show you how easy it is to transact. Um, they're like, well, what do I do with it now? I'm like, and so then I sh- open up the Oshi app and I'm like, well, you can take it from on-chain into Lightning and you can buy stuff here, 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 all of these different places listed, right? And and so that, that's that been really exciting for me to get people that are first principles thinkers in their multi-generational farm and ranch thinking about this new store of value and media of exchange that's essentially the next iteration of gold 
that you don't have to have an armored car to move. Right. You can, if you want to pick up, I mean, you're going to have more trouble transferring your cattle somewhere than your, than your money. Exactly. <laughs> You'll just butcher all the cows wherever you are and disperse it in the neighborhood, get on a plane and fly somewhere else. And then you start, start, start again. Exactly. And so is big is uh is the beef initiative a, a bitcoin thing like it's, it's for farmers who ha- like if someone's a, a rancher that doesn't work with bitcoin or know anything about bitcoin is they're is that, welcome yeah. yeah so 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 because you have the people that are comfortable and there's bitcoin education through the beef initiative like <clears throat> if you have farmers and ranchers that want to learn more about it mm-hmm. they can reach out to those of us that are using Bitcoin in our ranching business. And oftentimes the biggest question is, is like, well, where the, the accountant has questions on how do they, you know, show this on our balance sheet. Right. Like, right. And that's one you're of those You're a rancher, things, you're not an accountant. <laughs> right. And, and so that's the other thing that's oftentimes a question is like, well, how do we account for it as in our assets? Right. Because they're, so many of them are so highly leveraged that just like bitcoiners (laughs) (laughs) oftentimes so then i talked to them about some of uh some of the programs to where you can take a loan out on your bitcoin Mm -hmm. right so you don't have to sell bitcoin you don't even have to care about the amount of bitcoin that you have other than you have opportunity if you want you can take leverage out on the bitcoin that you hold Mm -hmm. um so so the beef initiative is not Bitcoin only organization at all. It just it has, you, fosters but, a place to learn about Bitcoin for those who who want to. For sure, and most importantly, we're just trying to get as many farmers and ranchers involved because that's one thing that we all struggle with is we're all experts in our field, but we have a hard time telling the story. We have a hard time getting a media package together, you know, to build a website and, and even post on social media and even know what necessarily we're comfortable posting whereas we have a a, um a media company that's working for the beef initiative to help Hmm. with if you need someone to run your social media account for you we can help you with that um so So resources yeah wide-ranging for for ranchers for sure and for bitcoiners as well because if you're a bitcoiner and you want to try and find a rancher that accepts bitcoin for beef this is a great place to do that right and and you were talking about how it's a resource for like education, and so I like a, I didn't know about this herd share ban thing that I saw online. Like, can you talk about what sort of what sort of implications this herd share ban has? And well, fortunately or or unfortunately, Colorado is a pretty progressive state, and <laughs> you don't say. <laughs> I uh, I'm on a couple of board of boards of agricultural based organizations that in the state of Colorado, we were able to get the herd shares act passed. So I think this has been two or three years ago and it talks about what you can legally sell direct to consumer without USDA certification. Um, What has happened in other states is the USDA has stepped in and shut farmers um, raw dairies down because they were not compliant with the federal USDA requirements. But each state has its own um, ability to be able to pass its own laws and regulations. So in Colorado, what we did is we, we 
It didn't get passed exactly as it was written. And if you look at the why, for, and how, it's because there was some wording that some of the bigger state, regional, and federal organizations didn't like. Maybe maybe NCBA, National Cattlemen's Beef Association, some of those things that made it too broad, allowed you to do, you know, sell direct to consumer in a way that they weren't comfortable with. Because, you know, when you take a beef to the butcher, you pay a, a beef checkoff fee, essentially, which goes directly to the NCBA to promote beef. And what happened was, is when the U.S. cattle or the National Cattlemen's Association and the National Beef Association combined, it went from focusing on the cow-calf guys to the main focuses on the feedlots and the packers. Mm -hmm. And so if you look at four multinational companies <laughs> control 85% of all protein in this country, pork, chicken, and beef, when something comes from a state that they don't like, they have the money and the clout to say, let's change this wording just enough to where it's not going to say exactly what all of the grassroots people wanted it to say. You can still pass it and feel good about it, but it's not going to erode any of our income. Mm -hmm. And that's ended, what ended up happening in Colorado. Even the uh, even beef has a marketing team. You know, Bitcoin doesn't, but even beef's got one for sure. And it's and it's it's multiple tens of millions. <clears throat> and so is um, like uh, comparing Colorado to other states in the nation. Like, are we? And when you say progressive, like, are we closer to where you would like to see it, or are we further away from from where you know? direct to consumer should, should, would you hope it for it to be we're, we're closer than many closer. i mean okay. like texas has uh usda inspectors and state inspectors and so if you have a state inspected facility you can butcher and sell direct to consumer anywhere in the state of texas and that's kind of the same thing with the herd shares here in the state of colorado like i can sell direct to, direct to consumer the problem is you can't have a retail storefront because that's a reseller. Mm. So even all if of it's that, on your ranch. even if it's on your ranch, <laughs> which is that's the thing that I've struggled with with our county health inspectors because that's who comes out and inspects your grocery store license, your retail store license, is they are still operating under the USDA guidelines that says if you're a reseller, you have a resale license and has to be USDA inspected. Mm. And the problem with that is me as a producer and my custom butcher have your health is our number one concern. A huge plant that does 5,000 head a day, sure, it has a USDA inspector in there, but you have... Their shareholders I mean, are they, their number one concern. They, that's exactly right. Their shareholders are their number one concern. And so you, when you have a recall and it's 10 million pounds of ground beef... That all came from a USDA-inspected facility. Bet you have E. coli or whatever it happens to be in the ground beef. Right. So tell me how the USDA certifications did any good at all whatsoever. You're still having a 100 million pound recall or whatever right. it is. Whereas if, someone, if one of my customers gets sick from eating my beef, 
My butcher's ass is on the line and my ass is on the line. Right, your, we your don't reputation. Care. That's right. We, I don't care about anything above that, right? Because if the customer's not happy because of what the something the butcher did, I'm not happy because I'm going to lose a customer and everyone that that customer talks to, I'm going to lose as a potential customer or maybe as a real customer. Right. Whereas those big plants... It's, it's just a factory. And make it up with volume. Yeah. They, they moo in one end <laughs> and they go out in packages out the other end. That's it, right. right? It's just a giant factory. There's a disconnect in, from the land and what we're Everything. Kind of talking about. And, and that's the other thing, too, that I, that I promote and preach is we are all part of a microbiome, mm-hmm. right? Humans, land, soil, grass, honeybees, beef, sheep, whatever, we're all part of the same microbiome. So you have to eat stuff that breathed the air that you breathed and, and lived on the land that you lived on. Because if you break that, then you actually have this broken microbiome problem where you're bringing bacteria and dust and dirt and whatever from another place and you're incorporating into your diet. You're literally ingesting it. So you're going to cause all kinds of problems, inflammatory <laughs> problems, whereas if you're eating stuff that was raised on the land that you lived on, or at least in the region that you lived in, you don't have those same inflammatory responses. I think people forget that uh, they literally are what they eat. Like when you eat something, it becomes part of you because yeah. your, your cells are constantly dying and being reborn. Or That's like right. Regrow- so you are literally what you eat. And so if you're eating this mass-produced, manufactured, cut in corners, that's that's going to be evident in your health. And I'll and I'll take that one step further. You are what you eat eats. And mm-hmm. why I say that is because if you look at the feedlot rations that go into a lot of these feedlots, it's whatever the food manufacturing facilities that are close to them, whether it's an ethanol plant or a candy factory, or a chicken processing facility, because feathers have lots of protein in it. So they'll pelletize chicken feathers, and that'll be the protein portion of a total mixed ration in a feedlot. And if they need an energy portion, and they're close to a candy factory or a big bakery, they grind up the old bread or the candy still in the wrappers, or the wasted dough that was a bad batch, and they mix that up in the, the TMR, the total oh. mixed ration as well. And if there's a sawmill nearby, because, of course, sawdust has lignin in it. That's the coarse material in grass, which is ends up being the filler in cattle. You have a sawdust, candy, and chicken feather total mixed ration. That's, <laughs> that's what they're feeding cattle. So that's why it's so important to know what your beef is eating and source from the people that are doing it the way that you want it to be done. And it's worth paying a little bit more knowing that the cow ate what the cow was designed to eat, not what uh, animal nutritionist figured out in a lab through cost analysis. Wow. The sawdust and candy thing, really, and the, actually the whole thing, the chicken feathers, all of that. Um, excuse me, I'm... <laughs> I'm a little disturbed right now. <laughs> well, and another thing for that is if you look at a um, organic-approved supplement tub, so so they have like these 200-pound tubs that you can use as like a protein supplement. If you look at the one that's 
certified organic. So your, your beef can still be certified organic. The protein in it is chicken feathers. So the, just like the whole USDA approved tag is not a, not a necessary indication that it's clean or good for you. Neither is the organic tag. And that's why I say we're beyond organic. I want you to come out and walk my pastures and hang see out with my cows eating. and see what they're eating and see how, if they're happy or sad, upset, stressed out, whatever. How do you, is there a way that you would sort of know if you see it that we're getting closer to that ideal of reconnecting more of the general population with its food source? Like how would you know if we're trending in the right direction and do you think we are? Hmm. You know, I haven't spent money advertising selling our beef in years. And so I would have to say that we're trending towards more acceptance. More people are seeking us out. So that that feels good. The other thing, too, is the people are asking the right questions. So they're doing the research on their own to ask the questions that will derive the answers that will help them come to the conclusions that they need to know whether what they're eating is good or bad, healthy or not. And so I think we're inching that way. Unfortunately, with the level of inflation and how wages have not kept up with inflation and just American consumerism as a whole, people are still not spending enough money on food because they're spending a lot of that disposable income on crap or streaming services. <laughs> could just watch the cows in the pasture rather than some new Netflix show. Or, and for me, watch the sun come up in the morning <sighs> while I drink a cup of coffee and mm. sit on the porch and watch the sun go down in the evening. You know, it's... it's. Mm. What's, uh, as we wrap up here, let's say... Uh, What's something that you're looking forward to in your older older years? Is it just watching the sun come up and down again as long as you can? Or? Well, I, I have a T-shirt that says, uh, I have a retirement plan. Yeah. I plan to raise cows. Hmm. And, and, and I guess so many people work to live, like they work their whole life to live, mm -hmm. right? For me... I've been blessed that I can live every day in my work. Mm. And then through social media, I can share that with other people yep. and through our products. And so I would like to get to the point where I can, where I can have a trusted um, employee that can take over a lot of the nuts and bolts work while I focus on the education because really that's my calling. I love doing stuff like this, just talking about what we do and why we do it. But I also love pasture walks and showing people and telling people and teaching people like why we do what we do and how they can do it too if they really want to. So that's that's really kind of what I see. Planning to, uh, or I guess hoping for your kids to uh, take over when you're, uh, not a physical ability, or are you going to do this until you're well I'll, <laughs> as I, long as you can? I'll go until I can't do it anymore. But honestly, I've raised we've raised our kids as ranch owners, not ranchers. Ranchers, okay. So, so, so we not necessarily working, but working 
doing more of the high level business vision stuff that you said you enjoy. Ex exactly right. Cause I, I like the, I like the nuts and bolts. I like the troubleshooting portion of it. I hate the invoicing oh, yeah. and the computer work. And I'm, I just, I wish I didn't, it. but it's a big part of it. And when you do all of it yourself, you have to do everything. Not only do you have to change the oil in the tractor <laughs> and sew the rectal prolapse back in the bull calf or whatever it happens to <laughs> I be. I don't even want to know what that is. Yeah. You, you also have to do the invoicing and the right. balance in the checkbook and all of that stuff. Right. You're the uh, front of the house, back of the house, the management team. Yep, exactly. It's a... Um it's quite a, uh, a a feat of effort that you have sounds like willfully taken on for yourself. Um, special kind of stubborn sounds like in some ways, but uh, I know that you know as someone who's who's you know eaten eaten the beef that you've raised yourself, I know that there's a tangible difference. And we were talking about like the smell and the. the the flavor and just the, the 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 micronutrients and minerals that you can't see, right? The what it's eating. For sure. Uh, I'm I'm like serious. I'm, I'm after you told me about the candy and chicken feathers thing. I'm not sure I'll ever be able to buy ground beef at the store again, uh, no matter what the cost difference is. That's a that's a pretty uh, well. We do a bulk discount thought. on big quantities of ground beef. So, and well, I do like burgers. <laughs> uh, well, uh, any, anything else you want to just like put out in the world and talk about and just mention? Well, I just say go follow us on all the social media where it's either Rick Ranches or Jason Rick, you know, W-R-I-C-H. Um, we're getting ready to launch a new website uh, to promote our new property with Airbnb and wedding venue and education stuff. Um, so just look for that. Going into Airbnbs, man. You're going to yep. have your hands in all kinds of things. Well, it's one of those things, you know, with the the beauty of the land that we live on, the scenery that we have, you know, it's million-dollar views. Mm -hmm. And so oftentimes I'm like, I wish you could sell the view. Well, this is an opportunity to capitalize to on both. that. Yeah, exactly right. And uh, uh, in the middle of a piece of very productive farm ground to raise hay and graze cattle and, and all of the above. And, of course, this ranch adjoins ours, so I can open a gate and go from our home place to the new ranch, mm -hmm. so it's perfectly situated. Well, I look forward to seeing that develop in uh, a DJ'd wedding in college, so uh, I have to look forward to seeing in a, an event there. For sure. We're going to have to do a barn dance for sure, but we're also <laughs> going to do another Rick Ranch's... Um, next summer? Yep, or, next summer. Didn't do one this year, right? We did not. We skipped. <sighs> Next year. That's Next right. year. It'll come. One one more trip around the sun is all it'll take. One, That's right. One more winter uh, with hay. Yep, winter is coming. Yeah, it is. And it comes quick, too. It was like 85, 90 degrees last week, and all of a sudden we're in, I think it was 50 yesterday. So Well, it was 26 over the passes, so <laughs> it's coming. Yeah, yeah. You, you like the difficulty, uh, the difficulty adjustment. That's a... Uh, <laughs> that's your motto. It well, sounds it, like. well, and that's you know, my joke is if ranching was easy, women and children would do it. Oh. And of course, my wife always <laughs> elbows me in the ribs when I say that because she's right. I mean, when when it's summer work and in fall work, whether we're branding or weaning, she's right there next to me yeah. sorting and and doing all that work. So, luckily, I have a very supportive, loving wife. Yep, land and family. It's not 
really uh, that much more than what we need. You know, a lot of the things we think we need when they're not there, we realize we don't need them. And uh, to counter that, some of the th- most most important things like like people that you love and like like loving what you do for a living you only realize how important those are when you have them in your life sometimes. Um, it feels like, I, you know, what, what I do in my day job, I mean, I love doing this. It's not even a profitable podcast. It's not, you know, we're not, I'm not making any money on it, but the, but I love to do it. So it doesn't feel like work. And the same is true for helping people with self-custody and same is true for, you know, spending time with people who have similar values and similar worldviews of how they would like to see uh, things improve in the world over time. So, it's like when you love what you do, you never, you never work, work a day in your life. And when you love who you're around, it's uh, you're, you're you're never uh, you're never alone. Right? That's exactly right. You have a soft place to land every time, yeah. for sure. Well, uh, Jason, thanks for coming on. I really enjoyed this conversation, and uh, I look forward to, uh, to seeing you again soon. And getting, I'll get in on the next batch of beef. Okay, sounds good. I'm, thanks, I'm, man. I'm uh, <laughs> I'm overdue. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs>